Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. The Let's Go Ricky Roll podcast, quarantine edition. We continue to roll on. We are live on YouTube. I'm your host, Bethel Duran, as always joined by the man with the name Ricky Romero, former big league pitcher. Ricky is uh, normally in one of his palatial estates all over the world, but because of quarantine, he is in Southern California. How are you doing, Rick? Where are you? There you go. Good. There you go. I, I, had to, I had to get dressed for, for this occasion because I know... Our next guest is a huge, huge uh, Laker fan. Unfortunately, he's a Raider fan, which, whatever. <laughs> we won't talk much about that. But, um, you know, he's he's a, he's a kid I met, you know, back in when I was training at Athletes Performance. This kid came, came to us. He said he was in the Blue Jays organization. I had no idea at the time. Um, and next thing you know, he blew up to be a, a sensation, a highlight sensation in in Toronto. You know, known as they they, they nicknamed him Superman, um, and just a you know a special special young guy. You know, and I've always admired him and 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 the way he goes about his business. Um, his his journey is incredible, just like everyone else's, and I can't wait to hear the story. So and for everyone, never, to- you didn't know him as a professional, so you knew him as a minor leaguer. I knew him as a minor leaguer, yeah. And then eventually we became AAA in Buffalo when he was coming up, and I was kind of on my on my downfall. Um, And uh, he was probably, honestly, Beto, I'm not lying, probably one of the the best AAA hitters I ever saw at that time for that a two month span. It was crazy the 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 numbers he was putting up there, and eventually he earned, earned his call up. And, you know, we'll hear more about his story where he was drafted, where yeah. he went to school that. But, um, you know, it, it's it's an awesome story. And it's, uh, as you said it right now, you were on your way down. He was on the way up. And it's you've taught me this, and we've all said it. Just be nice because you never know who you're going to run into. Today's guest, Kevin Pillar. 
uh, is joining us right now. Big leaguer with the Boston Red Sox, but most importantly, a big Laker fan. His first Zoom ever. He's learning how to do things. We got him on the Let's Go Ricky Roll podcast. And Kevin, do you remember meeting Ricky at API that day? Yeah, of course. Um, API, you know, coincidentally was located, uh, you know, pretty much on the campus of Dominguez Hills. So, you know, as soon as I got drafted, I, uh, you know, got invited to work out there and was kind of immediately uh, greeted by Ricky and Phil Hughes was there at the time. And these were both established big leaguers. So it was like a dream come true being able to just, you know, watch these guys work and, uh, you know, kind of just be in the same space as, as Major League Baseball players. You know, at that time, uh, you know, the Major League seemed so far away, you know, especially coming from uh, Dominguez Hills. It was just, you know, it was crazy cool to just, like I said, watch these guys go about their work. You know, I wouldn't say we developed much of a kind of a friendship there. It was more of kind of like a, a, a work relationship, um, you know, and like you said, coincidentally, I was, uh, you know, drafted by the same organization that, you know, he was an all-star with. So, uh, you know, you kind of fast forward two years. Um, I think it was like two years, maybe two and a half years later, I was in AAA with him. And uh, immediately we kind of started a friendship there. And, uh, you know, it's grown. And, you know, he became, uh, you know, quickly became kind of a mentor of mine. You know, as he kind of mentioned, he was kind of on his, uh, you know, downfall. And I was kind of on my, my uprise and, um, you know, that was always something I was really grateful for and always admired from him. Someone that kind of, you know, had the things he accomplished in his career, you know, being a first overall or a first round draft pick with the Blue Jays, getting to the big leagues, being a major league all-star, being an ace of a staff um, and him kind of being in his downfall to take the time to form a relationship and mentor a young guy that was about to kind of embark on his journey in the big leagues. Um, it's something I'm always going to be grateful for and always uh, will give him credit for uh, me kind of transitioning into what, what it takes to be a big leaguer, you know, on and off the field. Yeah. And Kevin, so your story is, you grew up in Southern California. Obviously, you're rocking the Laker gear behind you. You got the Kobe hat on. Ricky's got his Laker T-shirt on. Uh, I've covered the Lakers for a lot of years. And going back and forth and seeing this kind of attitude, you guys had that Southern California bond. You went to Chaminade High in the Valley. The great 1-8, right? The great 1-8. Uh, West Hills. You come out of there, and you go to Cal State Dominguez Hills. And, of course, I got my Dominguez Hills uh back here for you you know i got that making sure that i represent for the toros division two uh because <laughs> it was actually given to me by a guy that was playing there uh, i pretended to go to school there so i enrolled i just never quite went to the classes so but i do have parking tickets i owe at dominguez hills so I, that's not a place where scouts are coming and saying hey let's go find somebody here ricky went to fullerton won the world series with them how did you go from that to where you're at right now because the attitude must have been different well kev yeah. you, I, before you, you you jump on on that dominguez hills when you came out of high school you 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 had some successful high school years correct yeah i mean i was you know the best player on my high school team i had great numbers um obviously southern california is uh very competitive in high school baseball you know i felt like you know, whatever very successful high school, uh, you know, 
numbers are, that's what I put up. I hit over 400. I drove in a lot of runs. I sold bases. I kind of did, you know, everything uh, I felt like I needed to do in order to, uh, you know, play Division One baseball. You know, I think going back, um, you know, to high school and even before that, I never really was a kid that focused on baseball. I kind of played um, different sports during different seasons. Um, even through high school, I continued to play baseball, basketball, and football, um, you know, and even going back before that and, and, and uh, where most kids were playing travel baseball, I was going to the lake with my family and friends and, and, and wakeboarding. And during the wintertime, I was going to the mountains with my family and friends and snowboarding. So baseball was never really a focus of mine. Uh, I was always a sport that I think secretly I loved more than all the other sports because I felt like I could see uh, people on TV that looked a lot like myself uh, when it comes to like just, you know, just being an average height and, you know, a average athleticism and, and strength. There was guys that um, I felt like in baseball, you could always compare yourself to, unlike the NBA or the NFL. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, part of my, part of my journey was uh, created by me not being a full-time baseball player. Um, Did you, you have any other uh, scholarship uh, or was Dominguez Hills the only one? So the Dominguez Hills scholarship is kind of a funny story, but yeah, I think I had a couple of division one offers, uh, some, some to some Midwest schools like Iowa or Missouri. And then I even had one at UConn, but. Wow. And you, my parents, my parents were such a big part of my upbringing and such a big part of uh, the reason I fell in love with sports is I didn't, I didn't want to necessarily go far from home, especially in California. There's so many division one schools just in Southern California. Then you factor in uh, central California. And then you even go like more South to San Diego. I felt like there was a place that would want me to come and play. And uh, you know, those opportunities didn't really happen. I had a recruited walk on to LMU and I remember my dad telling me, are you going to school to play baseball? Or are you going to school to be something? And I said, right now, my answer is to play baseball and I'll kind of figure out the rest when I get to school. And, um, you know, he made a decision that he didn't want to spend 40, 50 grand, a, you know, a year for me to just go play baseball. He said, go somewhere else. Um, you know, if you choose at some point during your baseball career that you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, uh, your mom and I will support you and uh, send you to whatever school you want to go to. But, you know, being 18, fresh out of high school, I was, you know, starving to play baseball. I, it was going to be my first time playing baseball year round, full time. And I think that's a big part of what allowed me to have a lot of success in college and also move through the minor league system so fast is baseball was so new to me and it was still something I had to, uh, a really big passion about I wasn't burned out like a lot of uh you know 17 18 year old kids uh might start to feel now because that's the only thing they've ever really experienced um a lot of my teammates in high school uh were kids that I grew up playing little league with and I know a lot of them kind of felt that way going into senior year even though they still kind of wanted to pursue baseball their their drive and their passion from the game was so far uh different from from where mine was at my senior year I was so hungry to want to practice and want to be great and try to 
extend my baseball career as long as, as possible. And I, I credit a lot of that to my upbringing and my parents kind of introducing me to playing all the sports and encouraging me to, you know, play all the sports throughout the different seasons. And they always told me that you'll find your way and you'll find your passion. And for me, it took till my senior year of high school to figure that out. Wow. And Beto, and again, we, we talk about these stories, you know, um, played a lot of sports, you know, nowadays kids get caught up and going playing baseball 24 seven. Like I said, there's some cases I played baseball only, but I was never at any point that I feel burned out. I just wanted yeah. to play one. But I mean, the more stories you hear, like these guys played different sports. They were involved in different things. It wasn't just baseball, 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 baseball. Um, and the other thing, I mean, you know, he goes to, a, he, he had a chance to go division one and chose division two. And, you know, it, it just tells you that it doesn't matter. You know, the D one doesn't guarantee you a big league invite, you know, or, or playing in big leagues. And Kev is a uh, living proof of that. And um, you asked him, I mean, you go to, you go to Dominguez Hills, what, you walk in there and is it, it, was it just like different or did you feel right at home once you got there or did you know, Hey, I can play at this level. I can play at any level. Or did you ever doubt yourself? Like, man, like I'm not D one. So maybe I'll never fulfill this dream that I want to fulfill. Um, well, first of all, I was really comfortable going there. My, my high school teammate, um, and my, yes, still my best friend day, David fair, uh, he was a catcher and pitcher on my high school team. He got recruited to Dominguez Hills to go pitch. Um, my high school, my actual high school baseball coach, Sid Lopez, left Chaminade the same year um, I was entering Dominguez Hills and took a pitching coach job there. And that's kind of how I ended up there. It wasn't something where they were like actively recruiting me. It was more like um, it's the middle of summer. I haven't decided where I was going to go. I need to get enrolled in school somewhere and you know, kind of figure out what I'm going to do. And to me, I, I could have taken the junior college route, but for me, I knew, I knew I wanted to get into a four-year school. I knew I wanted to go to school. I didn't want to get lost in the junior college uh, system of just maybe not taking the mm -hmm. right classes and just really going to play baseball. Um, I was a little different at that time. I still, school was kind of Number one at that point was never about getting to the major leagues. It was about just pursuing my baseball career, continuing to play baseball because I loved doing it. And I knew that, you know, I had talent. I knew that there was still some untapped potential because of my lack of playing it year round. But I really just wanted to get into a four year so I could go to school. And if baseball didn't work out, I was going to have a degree to fall back on. And Wait, so you kinda... weren't thinking major leagues at that time? No. Uh, I started to think major leagues. I started to think draft after my freshman year of college. Um, when I got there, it was more about just playing baseball and seeing kind of where life took me. I didn't really have any um, close friends. I didn't have any siblings that went through the draft process. Um, when my four years in my four years in high school, uh, the best players out of my high school went to college. None of them got. Some of them got drafted, but none, none of them uh, signed. They all went to college. So I didn't have, like, a, a role model to follow after. I didn't even know what, like, getting drafted really meant at that point. I was very naive. I didn't have anyone to, like, look up to when it came to that stuff. So 
getting into college um, was really important to my family, like making sure I, I got enrolled in a school and had a fallback plan. And going to Dominion Sales, like I said, was kind of as a favor. I Even at that point, I was still kind of like a recruited walk-on, which, um, you know, I got no scholarship my freshman year. It was kind of a favor, like my high school coach was really just kind of, he was kind of like vouching for me, like, hey, he's a really good player. He's really athletic. Like, he'll fit in on this team right away. Um, I went down to Dominguez. Didn't even know where Dominguez Hills was, to be honest with you. And I know it's not, not that far where I grew up, but uh, it's no the other one, side of the world. I, <laughs> yeah, I never heard of it. I was like, okay, yeah, we'll go take a trip to Carson. I'm like, where the heck's Carson? You get in the car, and obviously, Southern California traffic, it was like, an hour and a half, two hours to get down there. And I felt like I was going to a different world. Um, but getting there, yeah. I met the coach and, you know, fell in love with him. Murphy Sua uh, was the head coach there at the time. And okay. he was just, uh, you know, a, a really genuine man and said all the right things and, and sold me on an opportunity to go there and told me that uh, I could come in as a freshman and have an opportunity to play. And obviously I'd have to earn that. And I in, embraced that and, you know, didn't fear the competition or didn't even really care about who was there before me playing my position. Um, I trusted in my ability and I decided to sign there and go there and play. And, you know, the one thing he told me and my family was um, I could use Dominguez as kind of a stepping stone if, if better opportunities kind of, um, you know, came about throughout my career that he would give me his blessing and I could move on from there and maybe have an opportunity to go play at one of my dream schools, which kind of was USC and UCLA kind of being from Southern California. And, um, you know, I got in there and, you know, I knew right away that, um, I belonged that I could compete with these guys if, and I knew that I was going to, ultimately earn a starting position in center field because I trusted in myself. And, um, you know, I knew that really early on. And I think going there with my high school coach and also my best friend from high school um, allowed me to be comfortable right away. Yeah. And the, the let me give the people the background. So if you're listening in Canada or wherever you're at, you're like, all right, what, what, what school are you talking to? Why are you guys rambling about a division two school? Because it, okay. it kind of gives you the background of who it is because this podcast, we're not talking about like, Oh, how are, the Red Sox going to do it, the Giants going to do it. No, it's who are you? Because this says a lot about you, Kevin, where you were a kid who wanted to go to college because to go to college, and if you're going to play baseball, great. And Dominguez Hills, you're playing against schools like Chico State, Sonoma State, Cal State, San Bernardino, and schools you people never heard of. You're taking buses everywhere. And the reason that you're going to D2 is you end up at a D2. It's where you transfer to. And I grew up down the street from Dominguez, so I know a lot about that program, what's going on. It's, it's, it, it, it's you got to be a grinder and it, it the epitome of what you are is you got to be self-made and that's why Ricky's really raved about you over the years and where you had a 54 game hitting streak at Dominguez Hills right like you yeah, the, made the, yourself the funny thing is the 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 division two motto is I choose d2 and it couldn't be any further from the truth because no one really chooses to go to d2 it's kind of a fallback plan on a fallback plan and you kind of just end up there so I think it's kind of funny that they sell you on this idea that I choose D2 because no one in their right mind would do that. <laughs> and when you're talking about kind of having that grinder mentality, like, you know, uh, this is not to like knock on guys that 
you know, have better opportunities because I would never tell people like, hey, go to Dominguez Hills or choose D2 just so you become a grinder. Like a grinder is kind of something that's, you know, kind of already ingrained in you. It's kind of a mentality. It's, you know, similar to that mama mentality. Like you're not going to allow, um, you know, your your surroundings or your, your, your settings or your opportunities to kind of define, uh, you know, what you you make of yourself. But Dominguez Hills, like you said, was – you know, it's not in the best neighborhood. Um, the baseball field's not in the best shape. We didn't have a locker room. I would go to class and I would go to the parking lot and I use my truck as basically a locker room. You know, you change in the parking lot um, or you'd use the bathrooms nearby. We didn't have, you know, anything glamorous like that. There was a lot of times we would get like group text messages from our coach at 6 a.m. and we'd have to come early to campus to put the tarp on the field to try to salvage a day or two of practice. Um, you'd also get that same message after class to hey, get your butt down to the field to pull this tarp off in between classes. Um, I learned how to hey. chalk the lawn for games so you know, at Hills. Just so that you know, we had a ability as I got older was hey, your job is going to be to chalk the first baseline and the third baseline. You know, in between double headers, we were also fixing home play, doing the mound. We didn't have a grounds crew. Like, that's just, you know, that's all I knew. I mean, in some ways, high school was more glamorous than, than going to college because, you know, at least we had, you know, a little bit of a staff or your your coaches kind of took a little bit more responsibility of, doing that stuff. They didn't trust high school kids to chalk the line or do home plate. You know, you have younger high school coaches, you know, maybe interns at the time that are trying to, uh, you know, get started in high school baseball and they're kind of left with those responsibilities. You get to college and there's obviously a lot more rules. It's a lot harder to get, um, you know, like unpaid college coaches to, to do that sort of stuff, especially at a D2. So a lot of that responsibility fell on the players like he says it's a grinder it's it's a grind you you you, you become a grinder and it, it's something that it, it's you're just born with and I mean I consider myself a grinder too you know from going to East LA I was just presented with the opportunity to be able to go to Cal State Fullerton but you know we still at Fullerton it's still not the it's still not the University of Texas or the you're still pulling the tarp, you know, doing the field. You have a ground screw that drags the field, but we had to do the mound. We had to do home plate. You know, it, 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 it's a Cal State, right? I mean, your your, your budget's limited. It's, you're not UCLA. You're not USC. You don't have these fancy uh, locker rooms and stuff like that. I'm sure now it's grown a little bit, but regardless, I mean, um, so you go you go there and 54 game hitting streak, a record that still stands. I mean, shit, man, like. You need one of those. Yeah, I would love to get, I'd love to uh, get one of those in the major leagues where it really counts. But, you know, like you said, I mean, Beto, you mentioned that you don't really choose to go to a place like the uh, Dominguez Hills or you don't choose to go to Division Two. You're, you know, you're not going to be you know, fortunate enough to get the same opportunities when it, when it comes to uh, people seeing you play, you're never going to play on TV. You're not going to play in super regionals. You're not going to play in regionals. 
Uh, you're not playing other big Division One schools where scouts, um, you know, are pretty much glued to the seats to try to find the next great uh, college athlete to, to be drafted. Um, you know, but I was fortunate that I did play with some pretty good players at Dominguez Hills, um, you know, my freshman year. A couple guys that actually got drafted, uh, Matt Hobbs, Cody Puckett. Uh, neither of them made it to the big leagues, but both did get drafted and both were really successful Division II baseball players. So they kind of set the foundation for me for scouts to actually come out to games. We weren't getting 10 to 20 or 30 scouts a game, but we were getting, you know, one or two or three. Um, so, you know, I was getting eyes on me as a freshman a little bit uh, because of those guys. But, you know, like you said, you had to kind of create your own opportunities to, to stand out and, um, you know, obviously my intentions weren't to go out there and hit in 54 straight games. I think as an athlete, as a baseball player, as a competitor, you know, we're trying to be successful every single day we step on the field. And every time I step to the plate, my goal is to get a hit. So it was something that kind of just happened organically. Yeah. Like one game led to two, two led to three, three was at 20 and didn't really realize I had this nice streak going. Um, once again, but you didn't know? Once again, it's Dominguez Hill. It's not like we have the luxury of, um, you know, a scoreboard or statisticians like, you know, giving us printouts every single day of like what's going on, you know. But as I started to um, reach kind of different milestones, whether it was the school record or uh, a conference record, and obviously as I got closer to the national record, it started to um, gain some some, uh, you know, get some headlines and it, it gained my attention a little bit as I was getting closer to the school record. And it was something where, oh, I've made it this far. I, I, I want to set the record for my school. And it kept growing. And it was like, now you have a chance to set a record for the CCAA, which was the conference that we played in. And as it was getting in the upper 40s, um, I think the record was um, – 49 at the time for division two. And that's when it started to really get some headlines uh, nationally. I would see it on ESPN once in a while. And it was, I don't even know if they spelled Dominguez Hills right on there, but to me, it was cool. It was like, I was finally like, you know, kind of living out a dream. I saw my name on ESPN and I don't even know if they had a picture of me. It might've just been like a graphic, you know, but um, you know, for me, it was, it was the attention that I felt like I needed to, um, you know, get eyes on me. And I think people started to, uh, you know, some more scouts wanted to come out and, and see what this was all about. Cause this isn't something you kind of just luck into. I think to hit in that many games, you have to have some sort of skill and some sort of ability to hit. And I think people wanted to come see that for uh, themselves. And what did you I, get? Did you get like a plaque, an award certificate? What'd you get? Uh, I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> I got memory. I got memory. I got I got a couple you, balls in my my case over here. I have to I have to look. And, and we you talk about this. Come on, Ricky Roll podcast. This is another thing we talk about, and we talk to the guys who came to to the to the to the to our camp, to the baseball camp, to the Ricky Romero baseball camp at Garfield High. Um, you just never know who's watching, no matter where you're at. You know, no matter. It doesn't matter if you're. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're at a D2 or D3. If they're there to see one guy, but another guy opens its eyes to the scouts, then they're going to keep coming. They're going to keep coming. They're going to keep coming. And you just, 
you can't never take a day you're on the field for granted. I feel like, you know, you just yeah, never that, know. That would, be, that would be like, that's the, that's the message that I want to send to the youth athletes, the, the eighth graders, the guys in high school, the ones that, you know, feel like they have limited opportunities in life is uh, you, you, my, my, my thought process was going to Dominguez Hills. And I even took the same thought process you know, after I got drafted, being a 32nd round draft pick, going to short season, playing with guys that were like three, four years younger than me, maybe even more than that. Um, really not getting a chance to play every day right away. Um, but I always said, if I have a jersey on and I got a field to play on, that I got an opportunity to, you know, open people's eyes or, or change their opinion or stand out. And it doesn't necessarily mean I have to go out there and get four hits. It means... How am I carrying myself on and off the field? How am I running down the line when I just hit a ground ball for the third or fourth time in a game? I'm over three, we're over four, and I've now grounded out four or five times. Am I still busting my ass down the line? Am, am I the first one out of the dugout to take my position? Am I high-fiving my teammates when they're having success? There's so many little things that, um, you know, can, can be viewed as a positive or allow you to stand out. Um, without actually putting up the numbers on the field. And I would never want to send the message that numbers aren't important and, and not being successful between the lines, um, you know, aren't going to eventually open the door to you. But there's a lot of other ways on a particular, any particular day to allow yourself to stand out when you might not have three or four hits that day. That's awesome. That's a good, that's a good message to share for, for everyone that's listening. I mean, that's, that's what you want out of a, a, a good teammate and, and somebody that cares. And, you know, it, it could be an O for day, but if you can make it up on defense, it goes a long way. And, uh, and people, I, people always ask me like, why, why are you willing to, why are you willing to like sacrifice your body or lay out in the ninth inning when you're da- your team's down by nine runs or you're up by nine runs. And, there's a couple of answers to that. One is that pitcher has a job to do and his ERA, um, you know, it still matters whether you're up by nine or down by nine. Like those are still his runs. Those are still his, his whip. These are still his numbers. And that's part of being a good teammate is, you know, you want to help your pitcher out on the mound. You want them to be successful. You want them to have confidence in you. And you never know when you're going to need these guys just because they're pitching, you know, mop-up innings in a major league game doesn't mean that they're not going to factor into uh, important innings later down the road. So you want them to remain confident. The other part of it is kind of like what I mentioned too. I I was a kid that never saw a clear path to the major leagues. It was always like a pipe dream. It was always a fantasy world. And um, like I said, I got these goosebumps just seeing my name on ESPN. So imagine how I feel still to this day when I watch myself on top 10 plays. Like, you never know when yeah. you're going to get these opportunities. So yeah. you know, I, I play every, and it's cliche as it sounds, I play every inning and every out like it's my last one because I really don't know when it's going to end. And I know, Ricky, you could probably speak on this, um, you know, better than I can. Cause I'm still kind of in the middle of my career and someone that experienced, uh, you know, so many great things like you did, you know, pitching in an all-star game, being an all-star, being an ace. I believe you won 20 games in the big leagues. Close. Um, I should have. 19. 15, yeah. 
but I mean, you know, you, you sign a long-term contract, you, you've made money, but you just never, you just really never know when your career is going to be over. You don't know if it's going to be, you know, something mental, something physical, uh, the game kind of just passes you by. There's so many different reasons now. And, you know, the game, the, the game that I'm playing now is just constantly trying to get younger and younger, and they're always trying to replace you. And, you know, you kind of fall in that middle class bracket, which is obviously, a you know, a very important thing to, to winning teams. But if you don't find yourself on a winning team, a, a middle class player doesn't really have a place in Major League Baseball anymore. They feel like they mm. can just replace you with someone younger and cheaper. And the sad reality is not all teams are trying to win anymore. you got to be very fortunate. And, um, you know, I try to stay, you know, as present as possible in what's going on and just really trying to enjoy the moment and never really um, – you know, I don't see the end happening here soon, but you just never know. And, you know, with everything that's going on right now, don't even know if there's going to be a season or not. Um, I'll be one year older, you know, when when baseball resumes. And like I said, teams are always trying to get younger. And um, you just never know. You just never know when it's going to happen. And, you know, I had that's the true. best year of my career last year and went, went into free agency. And, you know, it just – it wasn't easy. So – you know, I, I just go out there and really try to, like I said, play every game like it's my last one and, and leave it all on the line and um, just kind of enjoy playing it because you just never know when, when your time's going to come. Yeah, and, and it's true. I mean, I, I, can, I can attest to that. I mean, I, I think that's why every time I walked into a clubhouse, into a big league clubhouse, I was always in awe of seeing my jersey hanging from a locker, you know, whether I was on, at home, on the road. I always wanted to be there first or be one of the first ones there just because I wanted to sit in that locker room and I wanted to take it all in. I'd walk out to a big league stadium, even in Toronto, even being there after a couple years, like you still, I still look around and I'm like, wow, this is where I get to do my work. You know, I'm doing it at the grandest of stages and this is, this is so cool, you know, and, and never took it for granted because like, like Kev said, it, this, it can end quick and it did for me you know I mean four years four plus years went by fast in the big leagues and um and yeah you just enjoy every moment but Kev how did how did the Toronto Blue Jays come uh calling your name I I mean you were a 32nd rounder signed for a thousand bucks right a thousand bucks yeah. that a thousand dollars that's pre-tax. That's pre-tax. <laughs> that's why I live. That's why I live here in Arizona now. If I would have, if I would have lived here, if I would have lived here, you know, when I signed, you know, that thousand bucks might have been like seven fifty. Instead, I got about five fifty. Wasn't even enough to buy an iPhone. I and I've told that story before. That, um, you know, graduate. I, I graduated college. You know, a couple weeks before the draft. Um, you there? Can yeah. you hear me? Oh, there yeah, we go. You're good. You're good. Yeah, I graduated graduated college a couple weeks before that. Then, like you said, I got drafted, signed for a thousand bucks. You know, quickly learned about uh, you know federal and income tax, and that thousand bucks became about five fifty. Didn't have enough to buy an iPhone, so my parents generously um, gave me some money to buy an iPhone before I was shipped off to Bluefield, but. How I heard my name called, um, you know, I remember talking, I remember going to some pre-draft workouts with some teams. 
Uh, I think I'm having well, a little audio issues. No, I can't hear Kevin. All right. Well, you keep going, Kevin. We're going to reconnect with Ricky. So keep telling the story. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to actually go back a little bit because we, we talked a little bit about my 54-game hit streak and how yeah. I thought I, I was going to get drafted as a junior. And, you know, you hit 54 straight games. You, you know, you're an All-American, Division II All-American. You're one of the best players in Division II. And, uh, you know, I go off to play summer ball. In my mind, I'm going there to basically stay in shape, use it as, like, a continuation of my college season, play with the wood bat for a little bit. The drafts two or three weeks into the, the wood bat season in the Northwoods League, and I'm going to get the heck out of there, and I'm going to go play professional uh, baseball. And, you know, day one of the draft comes. I, I don't – I know that I'm not a first or second-round draft pick, but day two, which is, like, the third round to, like, maybe, like, the mid-20s, I'm like, I'm definitely going to get drafted in, in, in that region – um, you know, look at what I've been able to accomplish in my career. I'm a, at that point, I'm a three-time All-American in Division II. I set a 54-game or a hit streak with 54 games. Um, I, I won a college gold glove. I've, I, I'm just racking up all these accolades. Um, You're the man. I'm You're the man. Yeah, I feel like the man, you know. And, <laughs> you know, you, you at, at that time, you know, my thought process is I can only play against the competition that, is put in front of me. I'm at division two. I'm doing what I need to do. It's not like I can just pick up and go play against better competition or go to D one. And, you know, I had a couple opportunities to play Fullerton or Irvine in preseason games. And, you know, I held my own, I got hits, I did my thing, but I'm there and I don't get, I don't get drafted on day two and day three comes around. I don't get drafted. So I, I put up, these massive numbers for three years in college and I don't get drafted. So instead of, you know, really feeling sorry for myself, I stay out in the Northwoods league. I go out there and dominate, you know, the wood bat league. I hit over 300. I play center field. I'm a guy that's, Oh, given a 10 day contract to come out there to see if I can, you know, as a division two guy to see if I can hang with the competition out there. I go from being a 10 day contract guy to a guy that's, starting in center field and played every single game. I think it's like a Damn. 75 game or 78 game season. So I go back to Dominguez Hills, my senior year, the the chip on my shoulders only grown. I'm motivated what? as hell. Uh, <laughs> I'm motivated not only to, you know, prove all these major league baseball teams wrong and all these scouts wrong. I'm, I'm now back from my senior year. I'm motivated like hell to finish school. So I'm taking 18, uh, units a semester to make sure I graduate and um, just go out and do what I've done for the last three years and and put up massive numbers and once again go to some more pre-draft workouts and uh, you know do everything I feel like is necessary and this time around I'm having more contact with teams and filling out questionnaires and talking to scouts and they're projecting that you know I could go anywhere between the 10th round and 20th round so this time around, I get some of my friends and family together and we listen to day two of the draft together at like a sports bar and just sit around and wait to hear my name called. And, you know, as the hours go by and the rounds go by, uh, no sign of my name being called. And that was the first moment I got really, really sad and really, really nervous that this wouldn't happen. And I just felt like 
The have you been talking to Blue Jays a lot? Uh, I went to a Blue Jays workout, but I didn't talk to them a ton. It was like, I think it was at Huntington Beach High School. Um, and, you know, I, I went out there and I threw well. I ran well. I, I hit well. I did all the, like, the pre-draft workouts that you're supposed to do. What you were going to? What was that? What team did you think you were going to? What, what, like, who did you? I didn't have, I didn't have like a, I didn't have like a, an inkling or an indication of a team. You know, I was talking to a couple different like area scouts, the Reds, the Rays, uh, not really even the Blue Jays. I just felt like, you know, once you get to that point, it's not like you're having conversations with higher ups and teams. You're really just kind of subject to your area scout and, learning more about the draft process now, it's like once you get to these later rounds, it's, you know, what area scouts are going to stick their neck out for a guy and who's going to be vocal and who's going to, you know, be the loudest one in the meeting to say, like, I believe that this guy, um, you know, deserves a shot. And so day three, I'm just – day three of the draft, I'm just, like, distraught and, and, and somewhat depressed that I still haven't been, dra haven't been drafted and – you know, I wake up at my parents' house. They're all at work. My brother's at work. Uh, Amanda, my wife, who was just a girlfriend at the time, we wake up at my parents' house, and we're just making breakfast, and I just happen to, like, say, okay, whatever. I'm just going to flip the draft on and just kind of follow it while I'm just going through my morning routine and gets to the 32nd round, and I hear a couple of my teammates um, get drafted uh, a couple picks before me, and finally I heard my name, and it was the Toronto Blue Jays, and I was like just in shock that I got drafted and knew nothing about Toronto and nothing about you know Toronto's organization. Growing up in you know Los Angeles, like you don't see the Blue Jays play on TV, you know, mm -hmm. don't even realize it's a different country. You don't kind of learn about Canada and and Toronto, the history and the geography of them in in school in America. It's like, but to me, it was an opportunity, and I was like damn like couldn't be any further from home and I was still at that point so naive that there was so many levels that you had to um go through in order to actually get to Toronto or even get close to getting Toronto I was like damn like a couple years from now I'll be playing in Toronto and it was like okay I need to start to like learn about Toronto history and and the Blue Jays history and you know I get a phone call from I think it was my area scout who called me and just was like, Hey, congratulations. You got drafted by the blue Jays. We're going to offer you a thousand dollars. And I was like, how about two? And he's like, how about one? And I was like, okay. deal." <laughs> <laughs> and actually crazy thing, like I said, I met, I graduated college, you know, maybe a week before that. Um, and I was supposed to have a graduation party, like at my parents' house that same weekend i think i got drafted on like a wednesday or thursday wednesday or thursday and i was supposed to have a graduation party on saturday and they were very adamant on me being in florida sun for sunday morning physical so that means i had to leave saturday so i was like hey i graduated college like trying to give them the sympathy story like hey i graduated college i'm supposed to have my friends and family over to like celebrate my graduation you think I could fly out Sunday and be there Monday? They're like, no, you need to be here Sunday. So I had to call my friends and family and have them come Friday. And I was on a plane, you know, Saturday with no idea what the heck I was getting into. Um, I remember getting like a packet. I know, Ricky, you'll probably think this is funny too. I remember getting like a packet from them, like on an email. And they're like, you're going to be in 
Dunedin, Florida, which is where I think it was, they said spring trainings in Dunedin, but you'll be staying in Clearwater, Florida. And all of a sudden I go on Google and I'm looking up Clearwater Beach. I'm like, damn, this is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. I'm living in Clearwater Beach. They're going to put you in. They're going to put you in at the Baymont Inn and Suites. And you look at the, you go online, you look it up and you're like, damn, this hotel is nice. They got beach views and all this stuff. And then you get there. It's right off the damn highway. It ain't anywhere near the beach. It ain't Clearwater Beach clear water and you're like what the hell am i getting into and you have a roommate right yeah i I think i had a roommate like all that stuff all that stuff is like such a blur it happened so fast i remember obviously coming from the west coast east coast no matter what time you leave you get there later and i remember by the time getting getting like picked up at the airport or however that worked getting to the hotel um i think we had physicals the next morning so like the turnaround was so quick and then you're in a spring training facility you're going through all this stuff you know nobody there um you're kind of sizing up the guys around you you get done with your physicals they put you in like a locker room and you kind of just sit there for maybe an hour before you get instruction and you're small talking with guys and you know the the main couple questions that come up when you're in a room like that is Hey, where'd you go to school? What round did you get drafted? How much you signed for? And it's like, you know, people ask me that. They're like, where's Dominguez Hills? Oh, you played D2, 32nd round, a thousand bucks. Like this guy's got no shot, you know? But in my <laughs> mind, these guys, I'm looking at these guys. I'm like, they don't look any different than me. You know, like, I don't care that you're in the first round. Like we're all here. We're, we're in the same spot. Like we're about who to get the on first, the field. Who was the first rounder in 2000? Uh, there is a, a kid by the name of uh, Nick and not Nick Anderson, Ryan Anderson, Nick or Nick or Ryan Anderson. He was a high school outfielder from, I believe the San Diego area supplemental first round pick that year was Dwight Smith jr. Who's now in the big leagues and doing pretty well. Um, yeah. But you're in this room and you're basically just sizing these guys up and, yeah. um, well, he, like Ricky's told the story where, you know, he's the first rounder. He's the bonus baby. He walks in and everybody's like, well, who's this guy? Who's this guy? Who's he think he is? Who thinks he thinks he's all bad? Pilar walks in. What are they saying? That's. Yeah. And you know what? There's, there's, <laughs> there's like different, there's, you know, I, I can't relate to obviously what, what, um you know, someone like Ricky went through, but. You know, the, there's there's two kind of distinct ways that it, that happens. You're obviously someone like myself who's a 32nd round draft pick that you're going to get a little bit less opportunity because they don't have a big financial investment in you. Um, but at the same time, there's no expectations. So, like, really sky's the limit for what you're able to yeah. accomplish in your career. Like, once you earn those opportunities or once you're given the opportunity to play, you know, every other day, you really just got to be prepared and and go out and make the best of those opportunities. And it really kind of falls back on the things that I mentioned. Um, It's not necessarily me going out every single day and getting four hits. Um, It was how do I carry myself as a teammate? How was I showing up to the field? Was I like, was I following the dress code? Was I showing up to the field early? Was I being responsible? Was I being respectful to the coaches and the clubhouse staff? Um, you know, was I making sure that I was going hard as hell every single day in batting practice, shagging my positions? Was 
I, was I coachable when they wanted me to make adjustments? Was I willing to listen? Was I willing to put an extra work in the cage? Uh, was I weren't learning, willing to learn a new position to play the corner outfields when I've only been a center fielder in my whole career? These are all things that they're like, well, damn, this is a pretty nice kid and he plays hard and he runs the base as well. And he's got a good baseball IQ. Like, you know, let's give him some opportunities. And the, the more you can do stuff like that, and the more you actually have an opportunity to play, you're going to run into days you get a couple hits and they're like, Oh, let's run them out there again. And then you're going to have a couple more hits. And the next thing you know, you're a guy that they rely on. You start to, you start to um, earn playing time, but you start to also earn playing time. Um, even when you're not getting hits, they're like, well, he still brings some other things to the table. If he's not getting hits, he plays good defense. Uh, he's a leader out there. He's, he's a, a good teammate. These are all things that, you know, I learned pretty much early on in my minor league career that um, without being like a kiss ass, I was just being a respectful human being and a guy that was asking questions and wanting to learn and really trying to be the best version of myself, trying to be great. I was always chasing greatness. Um, you know, those are all Mama things, but what was that? Mama mentality, that's for sure. Yeah, mama mentality for sure, but you know, like I said, but then there's also guys like Ricky where, you know, you are what they consider the bonus baby. You come in with huge expectations and it's almost impossible to, you know, reach the expectations that, you know, unfairly are put on you when you are a first round draft pick because the, the, the gap from whether you're the best player in high school and you're drafted in the first round or even, uh, you know, if you're a first-round draft pick out of college, the gap from high school and college to minor league baseball is huge. You're now playing with everyone's best. You're basically like playing an all-star game every single day. So, like, those right. expectations are somewhat unfair. And even despite your career being a little bit shorter than you anticipated or they anticipated and all the great things you were able to accomplish in your career, there's still no way that you could ever live up to those unfair expectations mm -hmm. they put on you. So in some way, I kind of use that underdog mentality as motivation. It's like they had no expectations for me. There was no limits or, you know, anything put on me. It was like really just go out there and be myself and play. And um, even, even when I got called up, it was still like surreal, I think, not only for myself, but for them. They're like, why, why are we calling this kid up who was drafted in the 32nd round only two years after being drafted? That's what I wanted to ask you, and 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 Beto, at every level, he when you read up on him, and when he when I played with him in AAA, every level he he raked, raked. He came up to, and you remember those those, those months in in Buffalo when you came up, and it was just a laser show, boom boom everywhere, power, speed, playing the shit out of defense, and I'm like, holy shit, this is the greatest, one of the greatest um, AAA players I've ever played with. Like, hands down, like, it was just, it came easy. And then in 13 is when you made your debut? Yeah, 13. Tell us about that moment when you get called in, because obviously you're, you might be smelling it, expecting it at that point, but tell us at, at that moment that Marty Brown was the manager, right? Yeah, Marty Brown was still the manager at that time, yeah calls you into that office, do you kind of sense it or are you like, am I in trouble or did I do something? What what was that moment? What, what what was it like? And were we in Buffalo or were we on the road? Uh we were at home. 
And I didn't, I didn't get the, I didn't get the, the call into the office. I actually got a, so let's backtrack a little bit. Like you said, I, I, when I got to AAA, I, I started the year. So this would have been my second, this would have been my second full season in minor leagues. I started the year in New Hampshire. Um, I just came off of my first full season where I played half the year in low A, um, ended up being the league MVP, only playing a half a season there. Went wow. to high A, went to high A around the all-star break. Pretty much continued where I, you know, left off in, in low A, you know, hit 330, helped our team get to the playoffs. Um, actually got an opportunity to play with uh, Aaron Sebia for the first time there. He was down rehabbing at the time. Um, so then the next year I'm in, and the next year I, I, you know, don't repeat high A, I go to double A. So this is my second full season. I'm in double A. Um, at this moment, I'm still kind of naive to like, you know, the reality of how close I am to the big leagues. I'm just a man on a mission. I'm starting to put myself, you know, on the map a little bit. I still think I'm maybe like the, you know, in baseball America, like the 30th ranked prospect for the Blue Jays, right? Because it would just, wouldn't be in their DNA to rank someone like myself who was drafted so late the number one prospect in the the organization when clearly at the time I probably was, you know, our best player in the minor leagues. So I go to double A and I just continue to hit. And I think around all-star break again, I find myself in triple A or maybe right after all-star break. And I feel like finally, since I was a senior sign, I'm finally caught up to playing with guys around my age you know, I think I was 24 at the time. So I'm playing like with guys around my age and it's like, I've done everything I needed to do at that point. Now you're in triple A. Like, let's see if this kid's legit, see if he can hang for, um, you know, the remainder of the year. And at that point I wasn't even thinking September call, but I think let's just, let's just see what this kid's about in triple A, see if he can hang at the highest level of the minor leagues. Um, I go out and play for one month and I'm, you know, doing my thing, I'm balling out, and I get a phone call um, one morning at like 7:30 a.m. and it was Marty Brown. And you know, once again, I'm still super naive to the, the the process and 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 how things happen. So I just pick up the phone, and Marty Brown, you know, you know, basically, you know, shoots me straight and says, "Hey, man, you're going to the big leagues." And I'm like, "Holy shit!" Like two years after getting drafted, I'm going to the big leagues. Like, I can't believe this, man. It's still the most surreal moment, you know, in my life. It's, and I remember like, you know, I'm kind of like a planner and I want to know what's coming next. I'm like, so what happens now? Like, does someone like, they come pick me up? How do I get my stuff? And they're like, I know it's early, but just wanted to give you a heads up, wrap your mind around it. You're going to be leaving at like, I think they said like 1030 or something like be at the field. They'll pack your stuff. A car will pick you up. You'll, and you'll drive, you know, from Buffalo to Toronto. I remember calling my immediately getting off the phone and calling my parents, and it was probably like four thirty or something on the the West Coast. And emotional was it? Was it an emotional phone call? Um, yeah, it was. It was a pretty. It was a. Yeah, I think it was a, a lot of emotion on like my my parents and me. I think I was still in shock, but. <laughs> Um, obviously I think when I call my parents at four 30 in the morning, I don't, once again, they were going through this for the first time. I don't think their initial thought was, 
my son's going to the big leagues. I think they're right. like, what the hell, what the hell is wrong? Like, are you okay? Yeah. Right. Like, why is he calling me at four 30 in the morning? I remember like calling my mom and like, just trying to play it cool. Like, Hey, can you wake that up? Can we like, I need to talk to you guys and telling them like, Hey, going to the big leagues. And like, it's still like a surreal moment. And, you know, unfortunately, by the time they would have gone on a plane, they wouldn't have been able to make it out to, to Toronto in time. And I think I was only there for like one or two days and then we were traveling on the road. So my parents actually didn't get a chance to see me live. So I think I went Toronto and I think we went to Tampa and I think we went to New York and I think my parents came to New York, Yankee Stadium, and that was the first time they saw me in the big leagues. Wow. And that's, that's where, I what was that? hit, where I got my first hit too. Think, think about it, Beto. Two years it took him to get to the big leagues. At the 30 seconds. Wrap your head around that. You know, it, it's crazy, like, to think. And he did it by just, hey, I'm going to do what I what I know what to do. I'm not going to let any of the, that noise of first-rounders, top prospects get, get to me. It was just, I know what I got to do, what got me here, and I'm going to stick to that plan. Two years as a 30-second rounder, it's, it's pretty unheard of. And I'm sure... You know, doing that draft all over again, I'm sure he would obviously go way yeah. higher. Than we've been able and to. And you've talked, Rick, we've had these conversations before where you've played with guys who had so much talent, but between the head, they got in their own head, or guys that got so bitter because they were at AAA and other guys were passing them up. It sounds like Kevin was like, I'm going to put the blinders on, I'm going to lock in and go. Because two years before you made your debut, Kev, you're at Dominguez Hills with maybe 20 people in the crowd, and you probably knew all 20 of those uh, at, at, on the campus playing against, you know, like I said, Sonoma State or whatever. You walk into the Blue Jays clubhouse, you see your net last name. What was that moment like? Yeah, it was. It was a, uh, you know, it's a it's a moment you'll never forget. Um, still, like. I, I look back on that and it seems so foreign now because I think I'm going this, this year would have been my sixth or seventh opening day, which is still crazy yeah. for me to like wrap my head around, but walking into that clubhouse, um, you know, since I came from double a and went to triple in that same year, I wasn't in big league camp that year. So me walking into that big league clubhouse for the first time was, really the first time that I was around major league baseball players and like well, a group of major league baseball players too. So, you know, it wasn't for me, it wasn't like seeing my, my name on my Jersey was like a really cool moment for me, but it was like being a kid in a candy shop. Like I was in a major league clubhouse. I couldn't believe like how big the Roger center clubhouse was. And I walked in and I saw <laughs> names like Jose Batista and Edwin Encarnacion and Adam Lynn and Colby Rasmus, and I was like, oh, my God, like, these guys know nothing about me. They don't know me. And, you know, I was very fortunate that – and I remember, like, getting there, driving across the border, shutting my phone off because I didn't have, like, a plan yet, and I just – I got there, and and I remember, like, getting in, and I think Moose maybe, like, came and got me out of the car and, like, walked me in, and you're, like, meeting the PR people, and you're meeting – you know, all these different people and you're trying to wrap your head around all this. And I remember finally getting to my um, blocker and like taking it all in real quick. But then I think Raja Davis was my locker mate. And I remember being like, Hey, like he like introduced himself and he let me know if you need anything. And I think batting practice was starting in like 20 or 30 minutes. I need to be out there. And I was like, 
honestly, dude, like, where's the bathroom? Like, I have no idea. I've never been here before. Like, I just got a piss, man. That clubhouse is, club is human. I remember putting, like, my uniform on, like, for BP and stuff and, like, having my glove and, like, my bat for BP and, like, not knowing anything. Like, where's the batting cage or where's the groups? Where, how the hell do I get out of this clubhouse? Where's the field? So I remember just, like, standing there waiting for someone to walk by and be like, and I think the whole team was out there at the point because they were getting ready for stretch. I got there a little bit later and waiting for like a clubhouse guy or a staff member to be like, Hey, this is the way you go. And then running out on the field and like joining a major league baseball team. And you're the new guy that they have no idea who you are. You're 24 years old. You never think you're going to get there. No one expects you to get there. You didn't have experience with these guys in spring training. They don't know you. And then you're like just thrown into a major league stretch with them. You're like, this is uh, kind of weird. And I was like, who the hell are we playing today? And of course it was the Red Sox and John Lester was on the mound. And I'm like, okay, if we're going to, if we're going to play in the major leagues, let's face one of the best right away. And um, that's who I got my first day. Yeah. Uh, Erasmo Ramirez, the former big league pitcher uh, who played at Northridge says, I still tell the story. He made his debut in Toronto also. He says, they always ask me, I say, the freshest, cleanest, whitest jerseys I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, little Kobe. Is there a kid talking? Oh, here real quick. Come here. You want to say hi? Oh, you got the family debut on the Let's Go Ricky Roll podcast. And who is this? This is Kobe. This is Kobe. What's up, Kobe? Welcome Kobe, to the Let's Go Ricky Roll podcast. She, um, she's like kind of self nicknamed herself Coco right now. So, please oh, okay. just roll with it. Coco. All right, Coco. Coco. What's up, Coco? My <laughs> wife was like, maybe we should just let her give herself a nickname like Coco. Okay. I'm like, no, her name's Kobe. I named her Kobe for a reason because I want everyone to know that. <laughs> no, that's 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 pretty awesome though, Beto. Like, like I said, it, I mean, there's not no feeling like it when you walk into that clubhouse, especially the Toronto Blue Jay clubhouse, you hear veteran guys talking about how that's the best clubhouse they've ever been you got like the gym started like in home plate and the the home clubhouse goes all the way down to the left field line oh, that's wow. how that's what that clubhouse is so i could i could see how uh how kev was completely lost there on, on his first day and it was uh um i remember being kind of the same way i mean, obviously i broke with the team but still you walk in there and you're like okay where do i go i think i walked the wrong way so many times like my first week there it's it's humongous it's from like cold tubs hot tubs there's no more like little whirlpools now you're like in a huge like jacuzzi room you know you can fit like five guys in a in a, in a whole uh tub you know it, and you're not just waiting for one guy to be done it's like you have this whole wet room that's that's crazy the sauna i mean everything everything's there and it's pretty surreal um and um and yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's one of those things where it's, like I said, it's, it's a dream come true. And I mean, for Kev, like I said, that, that his story is, has been yeah, incredible. Cool, First major league hit Kev against who? When did you feel like, when, when did you finally feel, um, you know, comfortable there? Not just like in the space, but with yourself and like with your teammates. I think uh, for me, it was um, halfway through spring training. When they when they told me, hey, if you don't bear down here, we're gonna send you down. 
we're going to give you one more start. And then I started dominating. I started, I started feeling more like myself, more like I could be part of this team. And when I got called in saying that I made the team, you could see the team was so happy for me. And like, you, they, they, they like took me in right away and they were like, all right, you belong here, man. Like this is, this is, this is real. And I think that's the moment where I was like, all right. So I had a little bit of a chance to kind of, for you, it's different. You know, you, you get thrown right straight into the fire. Nobody knows who you are. Um, for me, I kind of, you know, came up through spring training with those guys. So they, they knew who I was and, and I was able to get comfortable as spring went on. But my, like the first few starts, I, I did not feel comfortable. I was, I just, I was so nervous putting so much pressure on myself. I was, I had just gotten put on the 40 man roster and I was like, man, I have a chance to make the team. Don't blow it. But, and then I think I started, like I said, putting pressure on myself. And then halfway through, I was like, all right, this, this if this is going to happen, it's going to happen. I just got to get comfortable. And I did that. And then, you know, you, once you get to, to the big leagues and you're part of that 25 man roster, it's still, I mean, it's still pretty surreal, but I think after I made my first start, it's when I was like, all right, I belong here and I'm here to stay. Yeah, I feel like I feel like in, in some way now, uh, the younger players, and obviously I, I've been doing this for a while now, and even the casual fan knows so much about the the business side of baseball now is, and I feel like for me, being naive about that stuff was, you know, you know, part of the reason which allowed me to excel so much is I didn't think about if I had options or you're supposed to spend this much time in the minor leagues. You're supposed to do X, Y, and Z or, um, you know, all the different things that come along in the business side of baseball. Like those things, I was so naive to that stuff where, um, you know, I think the kids now understand like, oh my God, if I don't spend, they know every little detail about the business. And it's not a bad thing because you kind of want to be in control of your career and understand that stuff. But the, you know, the naive attitude that I took, I think helped me, you know, guys will tell you if, if I don't spend 10 days in the minor leagues, I won't have this option or I do the, have this option. Or if I do this, I have this. I'm like, just go play, just go play. Like at the end of the day, I know it's hard to like keep that thought process and that mentality because, you know, in some way we are controlled like pawns in, in, in the scheme of things, but you know, my dad, even from a young age, always told me cream rises to the top. If you just go out there and perform um, and you don't get an opportunity, just keep performing. You know, whether whether it's going to be with your team or another team or this year or next year, like you're going to get an opportunity to do it. If you just keep performing and you keep being a good teammate and you keep being uh, a guy that's uh, accountable, the opportunities are going to take care of itself. Kevin, I wanted to ask you this. Now we fast forward a little bit. Obviously, your time in Toronto was freaking awesome. You know, you highlight reel every night. It seemed like we saw you on on SportsCenter Top Ten making an incredible catch. You grew up a Dodger fan. You get traded to the San Francisco Giants. You met you. I remember you flying into Dodger Stadium to play against the Los Angeles Dodgers. For me, I told you, I, I, I spent a spring, a spring training with the San Francisco Giants. When you see that jersey hanging in your locker, are you just like, holy shit. I never made it to the big leagues with the Giants, but obviously you were making your debut with the Giants at Dodger Stadium. What was that like? And, and, and my second question is, now you're with the Boston Red Sox. You go watch a Celtics game, would you, would you ever wear a jersey? Ha, 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 ha.
can do it. Um, so, I, so obviously, yeah, grew up, grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, my earliest, you know, childhood memories are, are watching Dodger games on TV, going to Dodger games uh, with my with my parents. I remember, like, we had West Hills baseball night at Dodger Stadium. You'd go with, you know, your parents and your brother and all the kids at your little league. We'd sit in the bleachers. Um, Dodgers were everything to me. Like, that was my favorite sports team growing up. Some of my best memories were either at Dodger Stadium or watching Dodger games and, and playing wiffle ball in the backyard with, with my parents and my brother and friends. But you know, what kind of helped me – what kind of helped me was – you know, being in Toronto for so long, uh, being drafted in 2011 and then getting traded 2019. So it was eight years of professional baseball. Um, you know, at some point, I wouldn't say it was my first or second year. I remember being in the minor leagues and still being so far, feeling so far removed from the big leagues that, you know, I still secretly rooted for the Dodgers and, and followed them and, and cared what they were doing. And I remember coming back from a minor league season and going to a Dodger playoff, a Dodger playoff game i don't think i like wore my dodger blue but you know secretly inside i was rooting for them but as i got closer to the big leagues and i started doing it longer you start to really only care about the organization that you're in you start to lose that fandom of the dodgers and even now like i don't you know care much for the dodgers like really care about them like you know my my allegiance is to the team that i'm playing for that's i put my heart and soul my energy into that team so getting traded to the Giants was a lot easier, you know, eight years later than it would have been if I would have got drafted by the Giants or got traded to the Giants earlier in my career. You know, I didn't look at that that black and orange and just like cringe and be like, you know, F the Giants. Like that's our biggest yeah. rival stuff. Instead, I looked at it through a different lens of, wow, this is a very historic franchise. This is a franchise that's won three World Series just this decade. I'm getting an opportunity to play with some of the best players in the world, arguably one of the greatest catchers to ever play, uh, one of the greatest competitors and big game pitchers in Bumgarner. Um, you know, it's business. It's business. Multiple, multiple multiple World Series champs in Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt. You know, arguably one of the you know, best third basements of our generation and Evan Longoria. Like, I'm like, damn, this is an amazing opportunity for me. Like is, is devastated and sad and uh, as emotional as I was to leave Toronto and never in my wildest imaginations thought I would be the guy to get traded four days in the year after, you know, being drafted and bred and brought up with that organization and had, you know, team success and also some individual success and, you know, just really embracing um, that community. Um, that community was a big part of, you know, my upbringing of coming into Toronto as a 24-year-old boy and leaving as a 30-year-old man. Like, so much happened for me there. I, I got married. I, you know, lived in Toronto more than I lived anywhere else, you know, as a newlywed with my wife. Uh, we started a family there. You know, I raised my kid, um, you know, pretty much a year of my life there. Uh, I was, a like I said, I had, you know, foundations and it was part of a lot of that, you know, stuff in the community there. That that was, in some weird way, Toronto became more of home for me than, 
the house that I bought in Thousand Oaks or even going to my parents' house, like Toronto was home for me. It was, that was my safe and comfort zone and something I look forward to every single year. And then all of a sudden in one phone call, in one moment, that's just all taken away from you. And all the things I mentioned about San Francisco didn't happen immediately and didn't happen overnight. It, it took some time for me to, you know, try to see the glass half full, but you know, the, the one saving grace with all that was I was still playing baseball. I was still, uh, I still had an opportunity to play. I was still in the big leagues. Um, and baseball kind of was just kind of my, my safe space through all that, all the, the, the emotions and all the devastation I went through of getting traded. I still realized I had a job to do. I still realized that I was going to have four at bats. I had nine innings to play defense and, you know, in some weird way, uh, not initially, but as I like started to see, um, you know, a new opportunity. I, I think it, it bred some new life into me. You know, I felt like I, it was almost, I almost felt like that, you know, 21 year old kid who got drafted. I felt like I had to reprove myself. I was playing on a team in a different division in the national league on the West coast that I went in there with the idea that they had no idea who Kevin Clark was, that I was a guy that played in Toronto that they probably never seen play before I maybe played against them maybe twice in an interleague game a whole career but that was the attitude I went in there like who the hell is this new guy almost that same feeling like I had when I got drafted that I had to reprove myself to all these guys and um it was kind of a humbling and rewarding and and refreshing um moment when I would put my uniform on for the first time at Dodger Stadium which was like the craziest thing ever when I got traded, I looked up, like, where are the Giants at? Where am I going? Where am I going to meet the team? And sure enough, Dodger Stadium, like, holy hell, like, this is coming full circle. This is, like, the most amazing thing ever. Like, I'm going to – this is going to be my first time playing in Dodger Stadium. It kind of sucks I'm wearing a Giants uniform doing it, but at this at this point in my career, I don't care. I'm going to get a chance to play in Dodger Stadium for my first time. This is, like, a surreal, surreal moment. And – were any of your family members wearing Giants gear or were they like, were some of them like, no, oh, they, did. They, they immediately, and you know, that's the nice thing too, is like, you know, I don't think we could take, I don't think we could take the fandom completely out of us um, because we have so many great memories of growing up being Dodger fans and all that stuff. But once again, my family um, and my really close friends were kind of all in this uh, crazy journey with me. So yeah. they became, you know, diehard Blue Jay fans. They lived and died with the success of the Toronto Blue Jays. So in some ways they were obviously a Kevin Plar fan more than they were a fan of anything else. So as much as it stung a lot of my close friends and family that still live in LA to, to put that hat on or to wear that Kevin Plar Giants uniform, uh, they knew that they were doing it for the right reasons. And yeah. I don't want to get into some of the other stuff with what, you know, the Dodgers and Time Warner did to a lot of people in Southern California upset them a little bit with having the games blacked out. So in some way that kind of helped where, <laughs> you know, some, some Dodger fans are a little bit upset with not being able to watch their local team. I didn't even play for the bit in the big leagues with the Giants and my dad still wears a Giants hat. <laughs> <laughs> is, he, is he one of those, is he one of those angry Dodgers? old Dodger fans because he can't watch the game on TV? 
No, he's not yeah. angry. No, no, no. He's just he's like just a Ricky Romero fan. I think he was at the time like because I I went in through for the Dodgers and they didn't sign me and the Giants ended up signing me and he was like did the, did the Dodgers have a did the Dodgers have, oh is there you talking about when you were coming back coming back yeah I was gonna say was did the Dodgers have an opportunity to draft you when did they have a pick before yeah. they drafted you at the draft oh you know, I think they had a they had yeah. a really late pick when uh when I was drafted um yeah it was. Like like you said, it was when Toronto drafted me. I was like, oh no, like. What number was cup. that? Six. Five, eight, six. Six. Yeah. And what that was hey. a Longoria, Tulowitz, Longoria, no Tulowitz. Tulo. Tulo was the pick after me. It went. It was like it's an incredible draft class if you look and back at it. It was, it was like Justin Upton, Alex Gordon, Ryan Zimmerman, Ryan Braun, myself, Tulo. McCutcheon, Jay Bruce. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Like it was, it was an incredible draft class, and which is why, when Tulo got drafted to the or when he when he got traded to the Blue Jays, it was like such a big deal. They're like, oh, was well, this is a look, you know, this could have been in two thousand and five if we didn't take Ricky, you know. <laughs> as uh, as we start wrapping up, Kevin, I know you got Kobe waiting for you on the side, and you got the baby also. Uh, before we have a couple quick questions, you always ask people about advice and all that other stuff. But before we get to that. Your Laker fandom, how strong is it? I know you'll never root for or go to Celtics jersey or anything like that, but where and how and why Kobe? Well, I grew up a I grew up a huge Laker fan. Uh, my dad was a huge Laker fan, and you know, I remember going to sleep in my room, you know, maybe as early as five or six and popping in the back to back VCR. Uh, video in my VCR in my room and just, you know, watching the Lakers back-to-back run. Uh, it was like this VHS my dad had given me. And, you know, he he talked about, you know, the Showtime Lakers and I wanted to know all about them. And that's really kind of where my, my fandom, you know, started. And then um, obviously early 90s, we had some some great players. And, you know, you get this young guy, Kobe Bryant, you know, coming to the league and teaming up with Shaq. and well, that's the crazy thing about sports. And I think that's what people are missing is, you know, you, you become a part of something bigger than yourself and you, you feel a part of a team. You feel a part of a city, you feel a uh, part of a community. And when the Lakers were able to win in 2000, you know, led by Kobe and Shaq, like in some way I felt like I won. And I think that's the crazy thing about sports and the, the, that what I think what we're all missing right now is, you know, being part of something that's bigger than ourselves and having something to cheer for, have something to root for, have something to celebrate, uh, have something to be upset about, have something to be, um, you know, pissed off about when your favorite player or your favorite team loses, like, you know, <laughs> and I just remember, you know, just being in awe of Kobe's, his talent, but like the more, uh, we got to know Kobe as a, uh, an athlete and as a person and the whole idea of a mama mentality. And even more so now, I feel like more stories are kind of surfacing about, you know, just his crazy work ethic and, you know, and you kind of think about, you know, the way he died and the reason he was doing what he was doing, it was all about him trying to maximize his time so that he could, you know, utilize every part of his day to try to get himself better. And at the same time, not try to sacrifice, 
you know, being a father and, and being a husband, like he was willing to make those sacrifices that most people aren't willing to make and get up at, you know, 2 a.m. to work out and maybe take a helicopter to the stadium and get back so he didn't have to sit in traffic so that he didn't have to miss out on time, but making sure he's getting his shots up and making sure he's getting his treatment. And, um, you know, I was watching him, you know, front row on my, my TV every single night, you know, through majority of my childhood. And, um, you know, he just made me want to be, you know, a better athlete, you know, work harder, dig deeper. Um, you know, when you were doing, suicides in high school basketball practice and you thought they sucked you know your my brain would immediately turn to like what would Kobe think about this how would Kobe run these sprints like I'm I'm tired as hell but you know Kobe Kobe would win these sprints he would set the tone for his team and you know I think he just became more than you know an athlete to me he can't became like a role model and you know even more so you know in his short post uh basketball career the things he was able to accomplish and the things he was able to talk about and you know all the stuff he was uh you know on the horizon of doing uh intrigued me even more about him and, and kev uh one more raiders or niners big raider fan big raider fan <laughs> you know like, once again all right we're gonna have to wrap this up with no raider talking <laughs> I got nothing to say. I got nothing to say about him. I think the future's bright. I think moving to Vegas is going to uh, revitalize his franchise. Um, there you go. Ricky hates and, anything Raider fan. You know that. Yeah, I think it's just, I think it's an exciting time. I, I you know, I, I'm, you know, the one thing I could say, and, you know, similar to you, Ricky, you know, the, the Niners obviously had an incredible run uh, in the 90s. It's It's been a, a tough go around for them. It's, finally nice to you know be a fan of them when 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 they're starting to be successful again and uh you know once again that's the beauty of sports is um you know you're, you're I love a fan of giving me the PC answer ricky is hating everything about this right now he's like don't ask him about the raiders don't ask him about the raiders uh, I, I, got nothing to, I got nothing to say <laughs> except the fact that you know as hard as it's been to be a raider fan it's 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 you know it's just embedded in you i was raised a raider fan they were in la when i was a kid and i know they moved away but my dad was a raider fan my brother's a raider fan and it's been hard so being a fan. but that's the beauty of being a fan is you know you have to endure some of the you know down times in an organization and that's what makes winning you know so much sweeter and i know that you guys you know obviously you didn't get a you didn't win the super bowl but you know, at least getting to that point, all the, the shitty years leading up to it made it that much more, <laughs> that much more exciting. And yeah. now you see the you see the blueprints in front of them. The, the foundation's been set. They got yeah. a great coach. They got a great quarterback. They got an incredible defense. And now it's a really exciting time to be a Niners fan because you you know that they can be successful year in and year out. And now yeah, you're just Rick. hoping – yeah, Rick. Not the head, Rick. They get back to the Super Bowl and win because that's what we all just, we're all fans for. Just got to win it now. Yeah. And, that, that, see and that's kind of been the, you know, and I think we're spoiled being Laker fans. Is you know they've only been you know not very successful for a couple years when there's you know organizations out there that this playoffs you know Ever. 10, 20 years in a row, but. You know, finally we were seeing the Lakers come back and they were going to go to the playoffs. They were going to be the number one seed. And 
you know, arguably the favorite to win the West and everything happens and, you know, everything's on hold and the anticipation of, is there going to be a season? Are the Lakers going to get back to, you know, the top? Are they going to, you know, get back and winning NBA finals and, and, and regain, you know, their glory is, uh, you know, something I'm, you know, just following closely. I hope the NBA season starts soon and I hope that the Lakers, you know, raise the trophy at the end of the year and, um, you know, make it worth it. We can agree on that. That's for sure. There you go. So so Lakers, Raiders, Dodgers for Kevin Pillar as a kid. As a kid. kid. The way we end this is usually, uh, you know, I feel like we've always gotten the, ooh, that's, I thought of that. You know, I, what kind of message? Huh, I think Ricky's cutting out a little bit. Kevin, do you hear him? A little bit, a little bit. Okay, right. one more time. We, we, we end the show with um, asking, what would what would you tell eighteen year old Kevin Pillar? What's the message that you will that you would tell eighteen year old Pillar? Being everything that you've been through now, what would you tell eighteen year old Pillar? Stay the course. Stay, stay yourself. Be yourself. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, Ricky, you could kind of attest to this. I, I know you pretty well. Um, you know, baseball is a very humbling game. It, uh, the big leagues tends to change a lot of people. It changes, you know, we'll flip your world upside down. But I, I think the thing that I'm most proud of is, you know, I've been able to, to, you know, be myself, stay myself, stay grounded, stay humble, not allow, uh, you know, fame and success to, you know, change me. I'm, I'm still down to earth. I still got my same, you know, group of friends from elementary school and high school. And, you know, I don't see myself or view myself any differently. Um, so I would just remind my 18 year old self to not let, you know, money or fame or success uh, change you, even though that it hasn't. But I think it's a good message for young guys to just, it's okay to be yourself. It's okay to be an individual. Um, it's okay to enjoy your success. And then, you know, when you make money it, have nice things, but don't allow that to define you. Uh, the best way to, to, to be defined is, you know, the way your peers and uh, your friends speak about you. And the fact that um, I think we're doing this together and on the show, you know, speaks, uh, you know, wonders about, you know, both of us and what we've been able to accomplish. You know, and like I mentioned, you know, I'm always going to have the utmost respect for you because um, when we when we met in AAA, um, you know, obviously being a first round draft pick, being a major league all star, uh, you know, someone that was making more money than I'd ever seen in my entire life in in AAA. um, You know, you were just so down to earth. You were so approachable. um, You were such a big help to me. And preparing me for what it was going to be like to, to get to the big leagues. Um, you know, you didn't make excuses for yourself when, you know, really, you know, we found out years later, there was physical stuff that was going on with you that kind of led to some of the, the mental stuff you had when it came to, to throwing, you didn't make excuses. You, you worked your ass off in the weight room. You worked your ass off in the training room. Um, you know, you could have been an asshole to a lot of people there. You could have been an asshole to the organization and said, I don't need to be in AAA. I should be in the big leagues. You took every day with, um, you know, strides and you just tried to make everyone around you better. And I'll always respect you for that. And, 
you know, Thanks, man. I do anything for you, you know, if, you know, hopefully, hopefully we get back to life as, as we once knew it and life is normal. And, you know, I'd love to come out and, you know, help you out at your camp next year. Oh yeah, man. That would be sick, man. That, That's awesome. You know, I really, kind words. That's, it means a lot, you know, and, and like I said, I mean, it, it's one thing that, that was installed in me early on just to be a good person more than anything, you know, any money, all that stuff comes and goes, but you know, being a good person and what your peers say about you. I mean, it's, it's, for me, it's what matters. And for you to be able to say that, you know, I mean, it's, it's I mean, I, I truly appreciate it. And, you know, we, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to come on this podcast and, and be able to do this. You know, we wish we would have done it live in person, you know, in, in, in the hotel room, like we've been doing it, but this works. I think people are kind of, you know, checking in and whether they, they, they listen to it on YouTube live, they can, you know, or they can listen to it later on, on the podcast, on iTunes, on Spotify. I mean, the message that you, that you have is incredible and inspiring yeah. to me, you know, and, and, and hopefully it inspires many other kids around the area that, you know, it doesn't, you don't need all the accolades in high school to, to be this, this big leaguer, or, you know, you're going on your, like you say, your seventh year in the big leagues. Um, all that stuff doesn't matter when you, when you get to put on a uniform, like you said, and you have an opportunity, you have an opportunity to get better and not make excuses. And you never, you have never made one. You've always just, you know, been to, to yourself. And like you said, you know what to do and, 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 you know, we'll be always rooting for you. Hopefully you continue to have a, you know, another a 10 more years in the big leagues and we'll, we'll be here rooting you on. That's for sure. Appreciate you guys. Should do this again soon. We definitely will, Kevin. We'll do it in person. Uh, thanks to everybody who watched us on YouTube Live. Erasmo Ramirez, head coach of Seekers from High. Ruben Torres, head coach at Garfield High, where we had the Ricky Romero camp. And all the parents who are watching this, our good friend John Beltran. And I think this is something that people can take out of it. And it, look, we're not being preachy about it, but at the end of the day, I have a lot of respect for both of you for the fact that you guys made it to where you're at and the ability to come back and give some of these stories to people. I told you, Kev, this wasn't going to be, hey, how are you going to do this year? What, how is it playing in the AL East? Forget the baseball talk. The realness, I think, really came out today, and I can't say thank you enough to you, Kevin Pilar. Now, I know you got to go take care of Kobe. you got to go take care of Powell, your kids, and you got to get ready for it be a season. And whatever team you're playing on, when you come on the Ricky Rowe podcast, just know that everybody listening, all the fans, we are all Kevin Pilar fans after this interview. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks to everybody involved with ProAngle Media who took care of us, put us on there. Uh, you can listen to on iTunes, Spotify, and you can go back and watch it on YouTube. Just go to Bethel Duran on YouTube. So for Kevin Pilar and Ricky Romero, thanks a lot for listening to the Let's Go Ricky Rowe podcast. See you guys. Yeah.